You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. We hope everybody had a wonderful, happy, safe, and healthy 4th of July. And we hope everybody is continuing to stay healthy through all these challenging times that we're in in America today. Before we get to this week's episode, just a couple of notes. Make sure you guys subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are getting a lot of subscriptions there, so let's keep it up. Again, that link is youtube.com slash C slash Hazard Ground Podcast. Again, youtube.com slash C slash Hazard Ground Podcast. Just subscribe and you'll get all the episodes via YouTube. Don't forget to go to our website, hazardground.com. Check out all of our sponsors. They help us keep this show on the air. They help us keep this podcast going each week. Uh, we certainly appreciate everybody's support of the podcast, but support our sponsors as well. That's a big part of what we do, as well as our Amazon promotion that is continuing on our website, hazardground.com. Go to the bottom of the homepage, click on that Amazon button. Whatever you spend, we'll get a portion of, and we'll donate that right back to some of the great charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. If you remember last week, we told you we made a donation to the Special Forces Foundation. Specialforcesfoundation.org is the website. Go check them out. A fantastic veterans organization that is enriching the lives of Special Forces soldiers everywhere. Don't forget about the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're almost at 1,000 followers on Instagram. We'd love to continue to grow those numbers as well on Twitter. We put all information out via social media, so anything that you guys need from us, you can reach out to us on all our social media sites and have a conversation there as well. Finally, as many of you know, I'm in the Army National Guard, and I was having a conversation with my chain of command this week about wearing masks and forcing the ranks to wear masks at drill and at formation. And I'm not going to get into a political spiel here one way or another, but the general consensus of everybody in the room was that whatever the leadership does, everybody will follow. And in that sense, we're not necessarily sure that you need to mandate it. If everybody in the leadership is setting the example, people will follow. And that's the message I want to leave you with. It's just that leadership is so critical and so important in these tough, trying times that America is going through. So look for leadership wherever you need it and be a leader where there isn't anybody. That is something that we can all do to make our society and our country just a little bit better. So now that that's all out of the way, let's get on to this week's episode. Our guest this week on the Hazard Ground podcast is a retired Army sergeant who in one deployment to Iraq was wounded three separate times in three different IED explosions. He has traumatic brain injury and PTSD. He's buried fellow soldiers and also buried two of his children, and it was a near-suicide attempt that changed his life going forward. He is now part of several veterans organizations, including Hand Up LLC, which is his own company, and IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans for America. He is Eric Donahoe joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Eric, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's always, uh, it's always a pleasure. You and I uh, kind of interfaced on Twitter originally, uh, and I was when I started reading up on your story and started reading up on you and uh, everything that you had going on, you immediately became sort of a person of interest to me for this podcast because of the causes that you're fighting against now, particularly veteran suicide, obviously one that is, you know, I hate using the word epidemic, given all that's going on in the world, but it is an epidemic in our world as far as suicide and veteran suicide is concerned. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to hear about all that you have going on and every organization that you're working with, because it seems that veteran advocacy is so much more of your life and passion now than the military was before. Uh, but that all said, start back at the beginning. Uh, how and why did you get in the military? 
Um, you know, I, I actually uh, was working for a radio station, uh, doing uh, sales and marketing for a classic rock radio station. Really? I went, yeah. <laughs> well, I work um, in radio on the on, in my civilian job. For, a lot of people may know that or not know that, but I host the radio show, so it was just kind of a weird connection. Yeah. Yeah, no, and um, and and I I had a, a sales call at uh, the local uh, recruiter station, and when I went in there, you know, I fully expected. Yeah, I was 26 years old. I was in good shape. We're in the middle of a war. I figured they would, you know, pitch me. And by the by the time that I got done, I I walked out, and and no one said anything to me about joining. So. I got to my car and I was like, that's weird. So I went back in. I'm like, hey, why didn't you guys ask me if I wanted to join? And they're like, why would you want to join? And you're in the radio business and you know this. Like, <laughs> you know, local radio stations, when you work there, you don't get paid anything. It's a lot of fun, but there's not a ton of money in it. Yeah. And, you know, but that's a common misconception. And he's like, you work at a radio station. Why would you want to do this? And, um, and so I was, uh, you know, left there and it kind of stuck in my head and I was living in South Bend, Indiana, and I'd gone up to Chicago to interview for a sales job up there. And I was, I was back from Chicago, uh, stuck on 8090 in traffic. And it kind of hit me that if I took that job that I just interviewed for that, you know, that was it. I was, so, you know, at an age where it's, I'm not going to go back later and join, so for whatever reason, sitting on 8090 uh, that day, I, I decided to, to see if I had what it took. And the, literally the next day, went down to the recruiter station. Same station? The paperwork. Same station. <laughs> Were they surprised the to paperwork. see you when you walked back in? You know, truthfully, no. I think they figured it out when I walked back. Um, my recruiter, he was uh, Staff Sergeant Charlie Brown, though. So you won't ever forget that. No, not at um, all. But um, I went back in and filled out the paperwork, took the ASVAB, went up, gave myself a little bit of time to get in shape. And right after Christmas, uh, 04, I headed off to boot camp. And uh, Charlie Brown never pulled a metaphorical football out from underneath you during the recruiting process, did he? No, <laughs> I, you know, I can't. I, 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 I literally, my, my military career, you know, I, I have to say I was pretty blessed. I, I, I came into contact with a lot of amazing people who took me under their wing and, and gave me great advice throughout my, my, my time in. So, um, you know, I don't have any complaints. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were signing up? I mean, I mean, I know you went infantry, but I mean, was that what you wanted to do? Or is that what just adds that? Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There, there wasn't an option. Um, my dad was, a. uh, 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 a LERP, a ranger in, in Vietnam. He was in the LERP company, Charlie company. Um, and I just kind of always, you know, thought if I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And, uh, I enlisted and got, you know, an airborne slot and going to, was just going to kind of work my way up and eventually try to earn my ranger tab. And then, you know, eventually shoot for the stars as any, you know, grunt does, which is, uh, for, you know, to earn your beret. Um, I didn't make it to that point, but, uh, nonetheless, I still had a great time. <laughs> so after basic, uh, in AIT, you head where? Uh, so I headed to, I did basic AIT airborne school and then, uh, 
the army was standing up a, a brand new brigade in Alaska. It was uh, it's the Fourth Brigade, Twenty Fifth Infantry Division. I am well aware. Um, I deployed with and, the Twenty Fifth. Okay, and uh, I specifically was a part of the Third Battalion, Five Hundred Ninth at Fort Rainwright. Infantry. Uh, no, that, that was 172nd. Oh, okay. We, uh, we got, because we were airborne, we got stationed at, uh, Richardson. Richardson. Okay. And, and they originally, we were supposed to go to Wainwright and then they, they changed that around and they moved 172nd up there because of, you know, our capacity to jump. Uh, it was easier out of J Bear. I, I always, when I deployed with the guys from the 25th, I always felt like you guys got such the shaft because, for the civilians listening, the 25th ID, they're headquartered in Schofield Barracks, which is in Hawaii. <laughs> so every part of the unit is in Hawaii, except for the one that Eric Donahoe was part, which is in freaking Alaska. So it's, yeah. I, it's like, I, I, I always joked, I said, God, that's got to suck for those guys when the rest of that entire division is sitting in Hawaii. You know, when I first got my orders, I had a very rigid plan of what I wanted to do and, and what I wanted to accomplish and wasn't really excited about Alaska. And then, um, you know, as the time went on, and I, I, I remember I was actually really pissed about it when I, when I first started, I was like, why, why would I want to go to Alaska? It's fucking cold. And, um, but you know, all said and done, um, I wouldn't change it uh at all i mean i i love hawaii it's one of my favorite places but alaska is is something else in itself so um and then that experience in itself led me to meeting my wife as i was flying up to my duty station um on the on the airplane we sat next to each other so it was kind of all meant to be i mean you know that's kind of what life is we if if we shut up and get out of the way life kind of leads us in the direction we're supposed to go that's an interesting story because again you were flying from georgia to alaska which is how long of a flight it's an eight-hour flight okay and 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 so go ahead so it's got uh you know i i forget what kind of plane it is uh but it's it was one of those uh planes that has the three row or you know the three seats three seats and three seats. So there's nine across or yeah, across and, um, or maybe it was three, four and four. Either way, I was in one of the middle seats in the middle row. And I was like, this is gonna, you know, just suck. But, um, I got on the plane first cause they, you know, military get to load first. And I was sitting there and I was watching the door as people were coming on and I see this amazingly beautiful woman walk in long brown curly hair, dark pinstripe suit, carrying a bath and body works bag. And I literally caught myself staring at her and I'm like, Oh man, I just became a the creepy dude. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know how you just like yep. drool, you know? Yeah. Well, but there's so part anyway, of you that's sitting there going, Oh, please sit next to me. Please sit next to me. Please sit next right, to no, me. The whole time, the whole time, <laughs> because normally I sit next to the people you don't want to sit next yeah. to, you know, the yeah. stinky people who have no yep. concept of personal space. And this is an eight hour flight. And I'm like in the middle, I got no like free room. So as I'm sitting there, I, I look down cause I don't want to be the creepy guy. And a few seconds later, uh, this brown bath and body works bag gets set down on the floor right next to me. And I thought to myself, well, this is a game. <laughs> yeah, this is a game changer. This is a game changer. I was like, 
play play cool play cool you know don't don't look too too desperate here and um so about three seconds later she sat down and i was like hey my name's eric how you doing today <laughs> and then you guys just and chatted it up the whole way that was that was pretty much it yeah we had a it was a, we often talk and joke about that being our first date we had a a chicken dinner it was a delta flight a chicken dinner they forgot my chicken um we watched the movie hitch so you know we had this romantic comedy it was you know had a little bit of a nap where we kind of you know i wouldn't say we were like leaning on each other but you know you just kind of like lean into each other a little bit and um so near when we were getting ready to land i wrote my number on a piece of paper put it in my pocket um and i wasn't sure if i was going to give it to her because you know rejection is a bitch right so mm-hmm. you just have like this amazing flight you meet this amazing person i was really kind of worried you know like i, I don't i don't want to give her my number and like ruin this amazing experience so i didn't actually give her my number until we were at baggage claim at which point she gave me hers and then i went and got to base and got checked in and you know like once you get to base there's a first 24 48 hours it's just kind of be a whole lot of soldiers coming in at once so it was about three days before i called her and um and she always gives me a hard time she's like well why did it take you so long i'm like this you know the three-day rule i can't look too desperate (laughs) now what was she doing going to alaska uh she was traveling for work she works for the federal government so she was um not she was actually beyond or bath and body works whatever it was she, yeah, she was she was flying. So she lived in Alaska. She's uh, born and raised in Alaska, and oh, she really? was flying back. Yeah, she was flying back from from a conference. So it literally, literally, uh, you know, just fate. Um, and then uh, what? So that was June of two thousand and five. So fifteen years this June, and then um, we got married. About nine months later, March of 2006. That is crazy. You know, you, we were, the, the old army humor, you know, the army joke. If the, if the army wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued you one. Well, in a sense, they sort of yeah, did. They, yeah, they, they kind of did. And I, I, you know, thankfully, she hasn't, she hasn't given up. <laughs> oh, good for her. Good for you guys both. All right. So you head out. It's 2005. You land in Alaska. Yep. Um, first duty station. What's it like? What's the expectations? I mean, how quickly do you get to a deployment? Um, so we landed June of 2005 is when the unit really first started getting going and October, well, the first of us started rolling out in, in September, uh, you know, the first advance team started rolling out of September 2006. And then, um, we, I deployed in October of 2006 uh, so pretty quick turnaround time. We were there about a year, just long enough to do everything we needed to do to get certified to go to war. Um, basically was it. So we, uh, Alaska was something else. You know, we, right, I got up there in June. So it was the middle of summer, which is, you know, pretty much daylight all day long. So, you know, when you're young and in shape and the sun's out all day, like you can literally go 
for about, you know, 20 hours a day with only about four hours of sleep. And it was uh, a whole lot of fun um, and excitement. The winter was cold. Uh, I'd never seen anything as cold like that. I hate, hated jumping in the cold because mm-hmm. usually the door iced up. And so you just slid right out. And I always seemed to hit myself on the side of the plane. Uh, but it was incredibly quiet once, you know, the plane moved away, even more quiet than what it was like during the summertime. So that was nice. And you, uh, landings were a bit softer if you had fresh snow. So, I mean, there were, there were upsides and downsides to it. Um, and then, uh, by uh, October, 2006, uh, we were deploying and my wife and I were, um, right at seven months pregnant. I mean, we literally got pregnant within the first two weeks of, of getting married. So know the feeling. Um, <laughs> wasn't planned that way, but yeah, me either. It was about a month right after I got married and it was twins for me. So, uh, joy, joy. Um, yeah. Where was your, where was your, where was your unit headed in Iraq? Uh, so we headed to, we first started off, uh, my platoon, we first started off in uh, Thob Kalsu, so okay. down towards Iskandaria, Najaf yep. um, area. And then in December of 2006, we got uh, my platoon and it's subsequently most of my battalion got moved to uh, uh, Camp Fallujah where we supported the Marines for nine months, yeah. uh, serving in a place called Karma, Iraq. And, um, and then when we came back from Karma, from, from Karma, we kind of, you know, we had missions that, that, this, um, to a bunch of different places throughout that Al Ambar Providence region, which was kind of an interesting area to see. And then uh, once we were done with the Marines, we headed back down to Fob Kalsu and we worked out of Kalsu and uh, Iskandaria area. Now, before uh, anything happens to you in Iraq, tragedy actually strikes and it's not anybody in uniform. Uh, It's actually uh, with your firstborn child. Uh, What happened? You didn't even actually get to Iraq, correct? No. Yeah. So... um, I left, and as soon as we landed in Kuwait, I uh, got the bags on the buses and pulled into Camp Buring. Once I got off a bus, I was told I needed to go to the talk. Uh, once I got into the talk, I got a Red Cross message that we had lost my son, David. Um, and it was from that point, the clock was ticking to get me back home for the stillbirth because, you know, you can't, you got, they can't keep, um, you know, uh, our son and and my wife for, for a super long time without it, you know, being a health risk thing. So, uh, I basically grabbed, uh, my civilian bag that we packed just in case and changed into clothes, turned around, went back to the Kuwait airport, got back on the flight, uh, and flew to Germany, then to Denver, then to Anchorage, and made it home just in time for the stillbirth. Jesus, uh, I mean, uh, that's a ton of flying for bad news. Oh, it was, I mean, well, were you torturing yourself mentally on that whole flight? You know, I, I didn't know what to think, truthfully. Um, you know, 
I'd like to say that at the time that I had like all these amazing emotions as a husband and father, and I was like this perfect person. Um, but truthfully, I didn't know what to think. Um, I was worried about my wife. I was worried about not, you know, being with my platoon. Uh, you're kind of caught into catch 22 cause you're doing all this stuff, getting ready and prepped to go into Iraq, which is important, but this is important, you know, even more important. And so, um, I was just thankful that I got back in time and I was thankful that I had good leadership that, um, made that a priority and, and made that happen for me. Um, that's not always the case for, for people, especially enlisted guys. So, um, I'm thankful for that. And then, uh, we buried my son and about a week, week and a half later, I was back on a flight to, uh, Kuwait and then, you know, eventually ended up, uh, meeting up with my platoon who had by this point had already reached Bob Kalsu, um, and, 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 you know, had begun, doing right seat, left seat rides and that sort of thing. So um, by the time that I got and met up with them, it was in the middle of the night. I went out in the morning uh, for a left seat, right seat ride. That night was my first mission out the door and I got blown up. So really short period (laughs) of time. Dude, for for a guy who had so much good fate going to Alaska, it, it came back tenfold in the other direction on you. You know, at the time, I didn't really see it that way. I think some, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately and fortunately, right? Unfortunately for the long-term aspect. But at the time, fortunately, I was able to just compartmentalize it, kind of put it into a jar, right? And and at the time, I didn't, you know, I didn't let myself think about it. Um, I mean, I, I guess subconsciously and quietly, when I was by myself, I was because, you know, I, I eventually had a conversation with myself after I gotten blown up that night. The next morning, I um, just realized that if I cared about whether I lived or died, I don't know if I would be able to do my job. And that is something that, you know, is hard for people to grasp who aren't in life or death situations. But, um I think a lot of people, uh, especially doctors and medics and emergency room kind of know what I mean by that right now. It's like, you know, if I, if I let the idea and fear of death scare me, I might actually cause someone else to die. And, um, so I let that go and I just, I kind of came to this conclusion that I was okay with dying. I had lived a fun and good interesting life. Um, a lot of fun stories to tell, you know? So I was like, if this is my time, it's my time. It's I'm, I'm good to go. And that was how I proceeded through Iraq. So when I got hit with my second IED on Valentine's day, 2007, and then when I got hit with my third ID two weeks, uh, it was actually EFP, but ID, uh, the third, two weeks before I was coming home, my third one, um, you know, I never expected to actually come home. So when I did, that was a whole nother set of issues that I had to deal with. 
All right. You, you unpacked a lot of things. I just kind of want to. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. I, I, so I I, I'm a tangent. I'm a no, tangent no, 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 guy. No, and listen, it's, I mean, it's, it's your story. So I'd rather have you speak. But a lot of people who we talked on the podcast who go through the experience of combat, you know, th- there's that real gets real moment. Right. But there's sort of an acclamation to it. It doesn't always happen literally the very first day that you're there. I mean, yes, there are stories of that happening, but for most of the people who have deployed, you know, it, it's sort of a, uh, 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 a, like I said, a gradual acclimation to it, and then boom, something happens. Because you were coming from a traumatic event and another one happened, did at the time you ever stop and think about sort of your own mortality and go, holy shit, like, you know, I just buried my son. What happens if I, if I make my wife a widow or, or anything like that, you know? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so yeah, literally that next morning, that's the conversation I was having with myself. Okay. And, and what I, what I realized is that I, you know, I signed up knowing full well that the job that I signed up for was going to put me in danger and the job that I volunteered for within the battalion was going to put me in even more danger. And so um, you know, I just accepted it. Um, what I didn't say is that, you know, and what we don't talk about as war fighters is that it didn't, that doesn't mean that I wasn't scared shitless, right? It doesn't mean that like I wasn't terrified, um, at the idea of death. It just meant that if I figured out a way to be okay with it, then I could figure out a way to get it past that fear, And that's, I think, something that a lot of people don't talk about in combat is how much actual fear you face. You walk when you, you know, you're outside that wire and and sometimes days on end and then you come back and everybody's so happy to be back and they're rushing off to get chow and phones and food. But all those times that, you know, you were dealt with an immense amount of fear, uh, you, you never unpack it or talk about it in combat. And so for me, it was like, you know, I had the death of my son, which it was an issue that I didn't even really realize how big of an issue it was until I'd come home. Um, I had dealt with the fact that, I, you know, I'd just been blown up and 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 how I, I never even really got to, to live with my wife. But at least, you know, I got to, you know, have someone in my life who loved me in that way. And there were just a number of things that you 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 rationalize, you come, you, you know, you make okay. And then you go about your day. Um, it just makes it hard when you come home. Yeah. I mean, did you, do you think looking back on it, sort of that let's just compartmentalize this and leave it there did more harm than good? Yes. Why? Yes. Um, because when you don't talk about things and, you know, it took me a long, to this place but when you don't talk about things when you're not able to ever get it out you know it sits inside and as you know and it's okay if the only thing you ever experience in in life are these wartime situations you might be able to compartmentalize it or put it in that jar and screw on the on the lid and if that's all that happens to you in life that may work for you but for most people that's not what that's not just what happens in life life continues to hit even after you get out of the military. 
And so once you get to a point where, you know, life is hitting you so much, the question is, is, you know, what behaviors are you utilizing to deal with those, to keep all of those uh, different aspects compartmentalized and inside those jars? Are you drinking a fifth of whiskey at night to go to sleep? Because if you are, what I would suggest is that, you know, keeping all of those things compartmentalized and on at the top is what's kind of making you have to drink that fifth of whiskey to go to bed at night. So I think that there's a fine line between, you know, staying in that warfighter mentality that you have to stay in when you're in combat, but also to be able to come back and talk to those same people who experience those same things and say, hey, man, were you scared at all? Like, you know, did you have any issues there? Because the reality is for a lot of us, you know, it all depends on the foundations that we build. And uh, it depends on that foundation that was built for us as a kid. And so if you grew up in a, in a house where you had an alcoholic as a father, or, you know, if you were abused as a child, if you uh, hit your head too many times in sports and had too many concussions, you can interpret the same exact situation as what the guy or woman to your right or left is in an entirely different way that leaves you with a different impression uh, that may leave, you know, PTSD for you with that situation that didn't cause it for the other two, if that makes any sense. So yes, you know, long tangent there. Yes, absolutely. I feel like keeping all of that in um, does more damage than good. But at the same time, I'm also not, you know, a feely touchy guy. I'm not real good with emotions. My wife will be the first one to tell you that. Um, so it's, it's constant work for me trying to figure that out. You were relatively unscathed in this first explosion, correct? The first explosion was, um, it rattled me. It scared me, but whoever buried it, buried it too deep. So it was, uh, ground took most, most of the, uh, most of the blast. All right. So we fast forward to Valentine's Day of 2007. Um, take me through that morning. What's, you know, is it a normal day for you? How does it start? Yeah, no, I mean, it, so it was, a, it was a pretty decent day. The only thing that was different was we were going to leave in the middle of the day for a mission. Well, not middle of the day, uh, middle of the afternoon. Uh, so daytime for, for a mission that would lead on into the night. Um, there were some, you know, you never really want to go out during the day, especially not in that particular area at the time. Uh, there was a, a road called Route Chicago. Um, and at the time, it was, I want to say it was the deadliest road in Iraq, but it was definitely one of the deadliest. Uh, I may be wrong if it was, you know. Anyways, so you just didn't want to drive down that road in the middle of the day. And uh, we had our mission. We go outside the wire. Um, and we had stopped locking our doors because it was a new directive. There had been some people that had gotten turned over into a canal and couldn't get the doors open. So our directive was to, you know, not lock the combat, not do combat locks anymore. And so we turned on to route Chicago and off to my, I was driving off to my left is the, is the water filtration plant. It always just smelled like shit. It was the worst smell in the world. Like it was horrible, horrible smell. And, and, um, I remember rolling past that area and just thinking to myself, I need to combat lock my door. And I, and I pulled up on that combat lock 
and literally about three or four minutes down the road, I got hit, um, which was more of like a shape charge than anything. Um, I'm thinking we we're thinking maybe like a mortar round, something like that, that was wrapped with 50 cal and it rocked the, the, the Humvee and, you know, almost came through where my feet were the inside of the Humvee, you know, the metal started to split out. So, um, another really close call, but that was the one from a concussion standpoint where I noticed the most change after, after the explosion I was having a hard time talking. I had a lot of migraines, um, more irritable, uh, and so there's a, you know, it was a, that was, that was, that one shook my world compared to the first one. Nobody else got injured on this, uh, second, second explosion rather. Um, no, we were, we were fortunate. Um, my gunner got a piece of shrapnel right in his chin strap. Um, but it didn't go all the way through to his chin. Um, so, you know, we were, it, uh, the, the bomb went off, it blew my door open. I was hunched forward over the steering wheel. Um, the guy behind me told me this story afterwards. I don't remember it, uh, but I was hunched over the steering wheel. He thought I was dead. My door was open. And so, you know, that that had to take some, you know, some force if I had combat locked it five minutes ago. And, um, I came to, I closed the door, apparently hit the gas and was looking at my LT and he's like, stop. And then I stopped and, you know, all I, yeah, all I, when I was looking at my LT was, you know, seeing the words mild to me, stop. So I kind of like, all I remember when I looked at uh, my LT was, was he was mouthing the word stop and I couldn't hear him. I could just hear all the in my ears. So you have these two close calls. Um, mm-hmm. Does the second one jar any of that compartmentalization of the first one, or you're just able to sort of pack more in there? I just packed more in there. Um, I was scared for sure. Um, and again, I, I just, I didn't talk about it with anybody. Um but I was definitely scared that, you know, any day was going to be my time. Um, but no, I mean, it didn't jar anything. You got a job to do. I worked with, uh, I was in the, the scout sniper platoon with a whole bunch of A-type personalities. You know, nobody else is talking about it. You're not going to be the first one that's like, hey, dude, I just got blown up. I'm really scared. <laughs> like, it just doesn't happen that way. You know what I mean? Like, no, sure. Just, yeah, I, I, and it happened that way. Like that should be a normal thing. Like it's not normal to get blown up, right? But like it's just not. It's not the way it rolled, and um, and I'm not sure it ever will be. But it is definitely something that when I look back on it, uh, you know, had I not internalized it as much, uh, I don't know that it would have done as much damage for as long of, a long of a period as it did. Are you telling your wife about these things that are going on? Or are you kind of keeping it from her as well? At the time, yeah, um, she knew. Uh, so she knew after the fact, um, and she knew that I got blown up, but she didn't know 
any of the things about being scared, um, having trouble, you know, doing my sentences, any of those things that didn't really come clear until, um, so I had my leave come, um, March, 2007. So it was about three weeks after I saw her three weeks, four weeks after that explosion. And and we went to Hawaii and that, that was when she noticed the biggest difference in me right off the bat. And, um, I kept telling her everything is fine. And I said, of course, I'm a little off. I just got blown up a month ago. Chill out. We're fine. Everything's going to be fine. It'll go back to normal. Um, we'll be fine. And, uh, you know, that was just the way it was. All right. So you get back after leave um, and you're getting in the home stretch of the deployment. I mean, when you think back to before, because I know that last explosion you said was a couple of days before you left or a couple of weeks before you left. But as, yeah. as you get in the home stretch of this thing, are you starting to feel like there's a sense of as soon as I get home, I can unpack this stuff? Or are you still sort of ignorant to the fact that all this stuff is brewing below the surface? I was totally ignorant. Totally ignorant. Had I, I, I literally, um, I thought getting home, you know, getting on with, with life was just, that was going to make it better. Like leaving Iraq was going to make all of that better. Um, and then, you know, I got back home, um, and it, it it didn't. (laughs) So, um, yeah. All right. Tell me about that third, uh, explosion, the, the EFP. Yeah. So, um, it was shortly after the year anniversary of my son, uh, David's death on October 14th. So it wasn't too far after that. Uh, we were in Iskandaria, Iraq. We were, uh, embedded with, uh, an, at an IP station helping out, uh, the air, um, you know, one of our fellow uh, platoons out in that area and we were on a night patrol and um, my LT and I were actually having an argument about whether or not we should be driving blackout. I was driving, uh, he was in the TC seat and um, my gunner leaned down uh, to join the argument. And he's like, sir, I agree with Eric. We ought to just turn on the lights. Everyone can see us. You know, like we're not really being stealth right now. And as soon as he said that, uh, something along those lines, um, everything from this point gets a little bit hazy, but that's when we got hit. Um, And the EFP was angled upward and it hit the turret of our Humvee, tipped us up, almost, you know, rolled us, but we didn't, you know, we fortunately didn't roll. and uh, because my gunner was down there, you know, in the argument with us, he's still alive today. Wow. Talk about fate, huh? Yeah. Well, and then so, you know, we clean up that whole mess. We get the vehicle back. Um, the next day, uh, three of us that were in the vehicle got sent back to to to, to the to Fob Calcio to get further on evaluation and that sort of thing. And then we went back out after our 
um, I think we were on, you know, uh, four, 48 hours, I think is what we had to stay on fob calcio, something like that. And then we went right back out to the IP station. Uh, I was out there for another day headed back. And then I think it was like a week later, week and a half where we were out of fob calcio and on our way home. Do you feel like, I mean, I don't want to minimize TBI, uh, or concussions cause they're, very, very serious. But all things considered that you were in three explosions and you walked away from it physically unscathed from that standpoint, does it ever surprise you? Yeah, every day. I mean, so I'm, I'm, from, I'm from South Bend, Indiana. The city that is right next to South Bend is Mishawaka, Indiana. The reason I'm telling you this is because in Mishawaka is where AM General's Hummer plant was. So the Humvees that I was riding in were being built in my neighboring, you know, town to my, my hometown by friends that I went to school with. So, I mean, I'm not surprised that I'm still here because they were passionate about what they were doing and, and trying to do, you know, what they could to protect us. So I'm not surprised I'm here, but I mean, I am because those are incidences that you're not supposed to like any other war, we would be dead you know, um, I wouldn't be here today. So, um, you know, there, and, and I think that's what makes it so hard though, too, is that, um, you know, without even talking about society, just me as an individual, I look at myself in the mirror and I don't see anything wrong, which is what I think makes it even harder and took and why it took so much longer for me to realize that there was even something wrong. All right. So you go for further evaluation. What do they tell you? Um, and sort of where are you mentally at this point? So at this point, I mean, I, you know, um, we got back, uh, from, from war and, you know, just like any any army enlisted guy, I bitched a lot. <laughs> so I was happy to be home, you know, and you're you bitch a lot while you're at war. So you always find something to bitch about. But I mean, even with all of that bitching, I I really like I didn't know what I what else I was gonna do. So for me, this was it, right? I was I kind of found something that worked with me and that I felt like I was really good at. And so I wanted to you know, my plan was to, to keep moving forward. Um, but when I got home, we had started those post health atta- uh, assessments, you know, the media, had, had, you know, and rightfully so it made a big deal about traumatic brain injury. And so it started, you know, um, doing, uh, testing for traumatic, uh, traumatic brain injury and then, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress. And so when I had hit that station in my post-health assessment, um, I had scored off the charts. And and I and of course I would have. It was just like three weeks ago I got hit by an EFB. So, I mean, my brain wasn't working right. I, I was having trouble putting sentences together. That constant state of a, of a migraine uh, was angry a lot because um, I wasn't getting any sleep. So there was a number of all of these things. And and so they asked me if I was having any problems and I had made the mistake and I said, well, yeah, I mean, I have, 
headaches and I would really appreciate if I could get something to get this headache away. So, you know, to go away so I could sleep, I'd feel a lot better if I could get some sleep. And that was it. As soon as I said that, um, right then I was pretty much right then I was medically flagged and found out that I was being sent on for further evaluation, which then later got sent to what's called the Warrior Transitions Unit, WTU, mm-hmm. yeah. um, where I went through, you know, speech therapy, a number of different therapies. Um, and then eventually they they said that I could, you know, choose a different MOS or, um, you know, retirement. And when I went through the list of MOSs that I was interested in and in, in choosing, none of them were available <laughs> because with me being an infantry guy and then you choose like medic, well, where are you going to put the infantry guy who's now a medic back out on the line, right? I mean, you want them where they know what's going on. So everything would have likely have taken me back to the front lines, which is where I couldn't go. And so basically they said my option was finance and I just had no desire to do finance. And I had another friend who it wasn't finance. It was another job like that though. Um, and he took that and when I called him, he told me he wished he would have taken retirement because, you know, when you're doing the non-combat jobs, it takes a long time to get your stripes you got to earn a lot of points. You got to, you know, wait for a slot to open up. There's so much that goes into it. So when you already have your stripes and you roll in and you take that spot from some E4 who's been waiting for two years to get his stripes, like they don't really like you either. So (laughs) he's like, don't do it. And, um, and so I ended up taking retirement and I'm glad I did. Um, you know, looking back on it because the fight that came next, uh, it was helpful that I was retired. That said, um, the decision to actually retire at the time, was, was it, you know, I know you just kind of talked about it, but was there any emotional struggle over it? I mean, were, were you torn at all or after oh, I, what you had I, been told, it was just like it was an easy choice? Well, I mean, no, I acted like it was an easy choice, right? I mean, I went around like I was that big guy, like, hey, you know, it's all blah, blah, blah. But I was... Um, I was actually really scared, you know, like, what am I going to do? Yeah, sure. Who's got it used for a washed up old grunt? You know, Uh, when I got out of the military, I I wanted to become a U.S. Marshal. And, um, you know, they're not going to give a badge to somebody, a badge and a gun to somebody who's got documented PTSD. Uh, and a documented brain injury. It's one thing if you are if you're already a marshal, but it's you know trying to get there once you've had that, it, it's just not going to happen. Um, so yes, absolutely, there were um, you know emotionally, uh, I was sad. I, I didn't achieve some of the goals that I set out for myself within the military. And all of a sudden, what I was good at was was done. And um, so I tried to make the best of it. I tried to act like it was it was good and it was what I wanted, but it, it wasn't. And 
I just kind of rolled with it. All right, so you get home, uh, and believe it or not, more tragedy strikes. Uh, your wife yeah. loses another pregnancy. Well, yeah. So it all started with. Um, so we were going to go to we were going to go to Mexico and celebrate uh, retirement, and uh, my wife wanted to do one of those, uh, you know, fit body boot camp type things. Uh, she asked me to go with her and. So we were going to this boot camp every, I think it was Monday, Wednesday, and, and Fridays. And uh, the second or third weekend, uh, my wife ruptures her Achilles tendon. So the trip to Mexico is canceled. We go into full-on, you know, surgery, start the men for the Achilles tendon tear. Uh, down the line, during this time frame, she gets pregnant. Um, and it was after our first trimester on that one, uh, that we lost that, that baby. Um, and the, the blessing in disguise was it was that pregnancy that, uh, allowed my wife to find the lump that was in her breast. And, um, and so, uh, and her right breast and, and, which ended up turning out to be a, an incredibly rare form of breast cancer called a phyllodes tumor, uh, which is a cat. Uh, 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 I'm going to say it wrong. Uh, carcinoma. And so, you know, it's uh, if it had metastasized through the body, it was a really, really bad situation. And so uh, within the first year Let's see. Within the first, within the first six months of being out of the army, uh, my life was flipped upside down, and we were talking about cancer treatments and the, and the whole nine yards. Um, and because we were living in Alaska at the time, and it was such a rare form of cancer, um, we had to actually go out of state. So we spent a lot of time. Uh, at uh, Cedar Sinai out in in LA, amazing hospital, amazing people there. When your wife loses a second pregnancy, and look, I, I for the females listening, I know for guys it's completely different than when a woman loses a pregnancy and a man, right? Like we just don't have mm-hmm. that uh, feeling of something growing inside of us. So that, you know that is. Right. But are you numb at this point to any emotion? Well. My wife would say, absolutely. I didn't feel like I was. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, I, I didn't see, I mean, looking back on it, if I'm being retrospective, absolutely 100% numb. In the time, what I'm thinking at that time is, all right, we got a crisis situation. So what do we need to do in the crisis situation? We need to come up with a plan. We need to execute the plan. We need to make this go off. It's, you know, everything you do, uh, military guys do, is, you know, you learn to mitigate risk. And one of the best ways to kind of control things and, and you know, control our environment is through mitigating risk. So I just went into that, you know, like, what do we need to do to mitigate Jen's risk? And, and and maximize her survivability out of this this situation. And that became what I focused on instead of me. 
right? So like during that process, I was there, um, I was there for her, uh, but I wasn't doing or dealing with anything inside of me or unpacking any of that at all. Uh, hadn't even started it. Didn't even know it was a problem. It's unreal. I mean, you know, when you hear it from the outside now, and obviously when you go through it, it's really, really tough to tell. But when you hear it from the outside, it's just, it all sounds overwhelming. Um, this gets you to a point where, um, you know, for you, it doesn't seem like there's an out. Take me to that moment when you recognize that you have hit rock bottom. Well, it was actually the first there. So there was a couple of times. Okay. The first time that I hit rock bottom, uh, I kept it to, I, I kept it to myself to a certain degree. Um, I was living, my wife had gotten a promotion. We were living in DC for very, uh, very quick brief of time. It was after she had recovered from cancer we were both, you know, searching for something and was dealing with all this loss. And we turned to other things and she had gotten offered her job. And, and I was like, yeah, you know, I was thinking in, in my head, you know, change the scenery. It'll be good for us. It's DC, lots of opportunity for me there. Um, it was actually in DC that I had the first issue and realized that maybe something wasn't right within me. Um, I was in a cab and the cab driver was of Middle Eastern descent and he got a phone call and he started talking in Arabic. And, um, you know, we weren't traveling very fast, but it like, it didn't take me long. And I got out of a moving cab because I wasn't sure what he was talking about or what he was saying, but I was you know, scared for my safety. Looking back on it, there was no reason to be. But at the time, you know, I thought in my head, I was doing the right thing given the circumstances. Uh, I had similar, uh, it was a flashback for me. I can remember vividly. Um, it was actually at nighttime. We left most of our missions you know, at night um, when we did ours and during my first deployment. And I remember my sister was driving and a, fr a friend was in the front seat and I was in the back seat and I was sitting in the middle, basically sort of where the gunner would be uh, from a viewpoint. But, uh, mm -hmm. and she just turned down a road and then all of a sudden it clicked and everything in front of me turned desert. And all I saw was a road down the middle of Baghdad and desert on both sides for a solid five seconds. And I just locked up and froze in the car. And, you know, like my, my sister looked back and could see me just sort of like flinching, you know, because it, it was so mm -hmm. surreal that everything, that's where it was. And then it all went back and came back to normal. But I remember that moment so vividly and how everything changed. Like your mind just literally plays a trick on you for a short amount of time. It's crazy. I mean, it just, it, um, I shouldn't say it's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy when you actually get into the science of it, but I mean, it's crazy how it happens and how it manifests for everyone individually. Um, and listening to people's stories, which is one of the, you know, the, the most amazing things that I've gotten to do over the last couple of years. Um, it, you know, everybody's stories about how they first realized, you know, 
maybe something isn't all that right. You know what I mean? It's all, they're all similar. They're all very, very similar in nature. Um, and so at that point we were, um, point when that happened, my wife was pregnant with our first daughter and, uh, we just, you know, things out in DC weren't gelling the, uh, it, you know, the, the two, 2008 crash, this was 2010. So, you know, we tried to make this move in the middle of the financial crisis. Our house in Alaska wasn't selling. We were paying, you know, absorbent rent out in DC. And so we ended up going back to Alaska, at which point, you know, um, we got our house ready, got my daughter, she came into the picture and, and for a while I found that new purpose, right. Which was my daughter. And I was able to, um, you know, keep on track because I had a new mission, which was to get my daughter through, you know, life. And then that kind of changes, you know, that only lasts for so long. And so, um, you know, by the time 2015 had come, uh, my wife had been transferred to Indianapolis, Indiana. We had just moved here. I hadn't even been here six months. Um, I went in to use the bathroom, opened up the iPad, and I saw that my wife had been researching divorce attorneys uh, here locally. And I mean, that's when it's real. Like that's, you know, people will threaten in arguments, you know, I'm going to, you know, let's just get a divorce. We should just get a divorce, you know, because you're in the heat of the moment. But when you have somebody who is quietly researching and trying to figure out who the right person is to call, like that's when it becomes real. And um, that was the, that was when I realized that, that life for me, uh, wasn't what I had hoped it would be. And as I looked around, uh, I, I didn't even, I, I didn't recognize my surroundings. I, I didn't recognize me. Uh, at the time I was 218 pounds. Um, my kids didn't like to be around me. You know, all I did was yell and I wasn't fun. Uh, I, I didn't have any emotion. I, I just, None of those things were, were me. It was just, you know, I got to feed you. I got to do this. I got to do that. But I wasn't engaged. And um, so they didn't like me. They didn't really want to be around me. And uh, when I saw that with my wife looking for, for a divorce, I just, that was it. That was when I hit rock bottom. That was, that's, when I, that's when I decided everybody would just be better off without me. And, and I was tired anyways, you know, I mean, that's the other thing we don't talk about, you know, uh, there's a battle that we're all fighting, you know, when you're PTSD and all this stuff, you, there's a battle you're fighting all the time that makes you tired, right? It's just the wrong battle that you're fighting. I didn't learn that until later on, but I was tired. And, um, and so uh, in December of 2015, uh, I took my kids to 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 daycare, uh, dropped them off, came home, walked straight up to my my room, grabbed my Glock out of uh, the nightstand, and and headed downstairs, and was intent on taking my own life that day. What thoughts do you remember about 
the process of trying to take your own life? How calm I was. Like that's the, that's the part of it that haunts me still. Like how eerily calm and sure I was in that moment. Um, I think it's actually what keeps me so in check on doing self-care today because of how eerily calm I was. Um, you know, I woke up that morning, my wife was running late for work, so she was irritable and I wasn't helpful and the kids were still young. My son was, you know, not even fully walking yet. So it was just chaotic household that morning. And for whatever reason, I didn't get worked up. You know, I didn't have a short fuse. Uh, my daughter and I and my son, but he wasn't really singing at that time, sung all the, you know, our favorite songs on the way to school, dropped my son off, dropped my daughter off, gave her an extra long hug because I didn't expect to be the one picking her up. Um, and then when I sat at the table, um, it was actually the idea of my kids walking in and finding me there that made me stop that. And the fact that, you know, if I kill myself in this shithole of a house that I, you know, that we unfortunately bought and got sold, then they won't be able to sell it and they'll have to live in this for the rest of their lives. I can't do that to them. And so I began trying to figure out that day, like where I can do it. So it won't be such a, you know, drastic uh, loss for my kids. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be something that they would see or that they would have some, you know, memory of. And before I knew it, it was time to pick my kids up. Um, and I hadn't pulled the trigger. Um, and so I, I just decided I need to figure out where I'm going to do it at. And I put it one upstairs. I, I put the gun away. I went and picked up my kids. And uh, I had figured that what I would do is just go for a hike. That would probably be the easiest and best way to do it. And when I had decided that that was the way that I was going to do it the following week, um, my platoon sergeant, my first platoon sergeant, had taken his own life and I got word about that. And as angry as I was at him for taking his own life, it was the irony of that situation that made me realize how fucked up I was. When you come to that realization, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you have to act, but what steps do you go through? So, um, well, the, for me, what I ended up doing that night when I found out about, about my friend, I was watching Rocky six. I'm a huge Rocky fan. Um, you mean Rocky Balboa? Rocky Balboa, okay. yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a huge Rocky fan myself. There is no Rocky Six, so we just call it Rocky Balboa. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he's in there and he's talking about – he's talking to his son, right? Nobody hitting harder than life. Right. And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching that, and it was 
like all of these events that I just told you about, you know, like David, these three explosions, um, you know, my battalion lost 19 guys at war. Uh, I've lost at the time when this had happened, um, 13 guys to suicide, one of them being just fresh in my own head, uh, the closest yet to me that I had lost. Like all of these things just came rushing through. And I, it was like a light bulb moment went off and I just realized that I had stopped getting back up. And, and I, I, the, I knew that I needed to get back up. And so I literally, uh, at this point, I hadn't told anyone that I had tried to do that two days before. Um, I got up, I walked downstairs that night that I was watching Rocky six. It was like, uh, I want to say three in the morning, our time. And it was like 11 PM Alaska time. And I called my best friend, Brent, who was my second platoon sergeant, but was also uh, very much like a big brother, best friend of mine. And uh, as soon as he picked up the phone, he he always answered the phone all fucked up. And he's like, uh, Bill's backwood barbecue and grill. What can I kill and cook up for you or some shit like that? And <laughs> he always had some fucked up way of answering mm-hmm. the phone. And I just started crying. And he was like, what's going on? And I, 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 I was, I managed to get out to him. I was like, I don't want to die. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? And I was like, I, I tried to eat my Glock two days ago. Um, and he immediately is like, we got to tell Jen. And if I, I, I knew at the time that if I told Jen with where our relationship is with where everything was in life, the, the first thing she was going to say to me is you, you got to go to a hospital. And I just didn't, like that wasn't something that I that I was even open to the idea of going and doing. I would rather go visit the first plan than go do the second plan. I don't no, know why that is. I'm but, just curious one second. I thought you were going to tell me that you were afraid to tell her because you knew that would solidify her leaving. No, I didn't want to go to a hospital. Really? She was waiting for me to tell her that I was that there was something wrong and I needed help. Full disclosure, my wife is a social worker. Okay. <laughs> so she's known for a long time all of the things that took me a really long time to figure out and that I, you know, um, wanted to ignore and didn't want to see in front of me. Um, and for her, you know, um, she just, she did what she could to keep me as independent as possible. Uh, which I'm incredibly thankful for today. Um, but she, you know, she never social worked me and I'm also thankful for that. So as soon as I would have said that out loud, she would have said, I knew it. Like if you, if she would have come home and found me that way that day, she would not have been surprised. Um, she knew it. I just didn't want to admit it out loud. And so i I told my buddy Brent, and he's like, we got to tell Jen. And I was like, no, I, I don't want to go to hospital, man. Like, nope. They're just going to push me full of a bunch of pills. They're going to start putting me back on this shit, this shit. None of that worked for me. I'm like, nope, I don't want to. And he said, well, what's your plan? You got to tell me you're going to have a plan. 
can't call me up and tell me this, Eric. And then, you know, and uh, like I got one. And and so that I, I told him that I wanted to do a program called Warriors to Summits, uh, which is a, a program that was put on. It's no longer active, but at the time it was put on by a group called No Barriers Warriors. And um, the premise is that you climb three different mountains over a climbing series, each mountain getting more and more difficult. And as someone who did a lot of that prior to uh, joining the military and then while I was in the military, it was a perfect opportunity for me to connect one of my passions uh, with recovery. And, you know, I brought along my photography, which I always do, which is, you know, was helpful for that. But uh, that was the plan. I was going to apply for that. And and had I not gotten it, I don't know what the next plan was, but that was my plan. All right. So the road to recovery of all this, and, you know, maybe recovery is not the right word because um, clearly it's still a process, right? You never actually recovered from this. You're just sort of surviving and then hopefully thriving to a certain extent. But from that standpoint, can you describe that road? I know it's day by day, moment by moment, certain cases, minute by minute, if you will. But what is that whole process like? Um, well, I think, you know, so of course, you know, I want to start this out by saying that process is going to be individualized for each individual, right? So right. what was mine may not be something that works for someone else. And I just want to preface this by saying that because there's a lot of guys looking for a magic fix right now. And, um, you know, that doesn't exist. No, just, but the hope is that something you say is the catalyst. Right. For them. Yes. Yes. That's, that's absolutely the case. So, um, what does the road look like for me? What did that look like for me? The first thing I think that when you're talking about is you have to figure out what is the road, what, what does the road look like for me? What is it that I'm dealing with? And so, um, you know, one of the things that I knew was that I had, um, issues that I needed to deal with, but when I would use that traditional PTSD therapy, that traditional PTSD modeling for therapy, um, and enact those things in my daily life, I wasn't getting any better. And I, you know, you get frustrated at that. It's like, you know, I'm on it for four weeks and nothing in my life gets any better. Like, how is this stuff going to help me? And that was, uh, it wasn't until my first expedition that I went on, uh, I was talking to uh, a mentor of mine. His name's Diedrich Jonick. He's a, an amazing photographer. And I was asking him what he does when he, photo you know, he does his photography around the world. Like when you go into uh, places that aren't necess necessarily safe, like what is it that you do for your security? Now, mind you, that's what I'm thinking about as, you know, an aspiring photographer is like, how do I go to these places and keep myself safe? Not how do I go to these places and get this amazing shot? It was, how do I go to these places and keep myself safe? And it was in this conversation, he goes through this long list about fixers, 
hiring people and blah, blah, blah. And then he looks at me and he said something I'll never forget. He looks at me and he goes, Eric, at the end, you just have to have faith in humanity. You have to have faith in the human spirit. And in very Diedrich fashion, he ran off and he's, you know, we were on the last day going out. He needed to get set up and get people's pictures on the way out of the, you know, off the expedition. And, and I had about four miles to think about that on my own. And what I realized is that um, I didn't have it. I didn't have faith. See, because when you have faith, that means that you are giving up control. Uh, to ha- to be able to have that faith, you're giving up some level of control. And for me, I couldn't ever envision myself in giving up any of that control because if I gave up that control, maybe I wouldn't be able to keep my family safe. Maybe I wouldn't be able to keep my wife safe, wouldn't be able to keep me safe. And then it was like, holy shit, this is it. This is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. Um, fear, fear and the inability to have faith in something. Um, and so that, that's a, a really huge thing to realize. Um, and, and that began that really this four year journey that I've been on trying to dissect that ability to, to let go of that need to have that constant control and that constant mitigating risk uh, and replace that, you know, uh, with faith. There's a a song, uh, his name's Pete Scobell. He wrote a song. uh, It's uh, Hearts I Leave Behind is the name of the song. And in it, he talks about, I want to create a, I want to write, how does it go? Something about, I want to write my own book where fear and faith are intertwined. I want to create my own road where fear and faith are intertwined. And, and, and I heard that literally, I got on the bus, put on my headphones. Uh, we were going back to the hotel. That song came on and I heard that and I was like, all right, so what does this mean? Uh, I did some research and some looking into that and I came across an idea and a concept that we don't really talk a lot about in the veteran community at all, but moral injury. And, and as I started to dig into this idea of moral injury and what does that, you know, mean for me, uh, along with encompassing these techniques and, and things that I learned, you know, in therapy for PTSD. And then my life just kind of, you know, started taking off. And all those barriers that I found it really difficult to get over didn't seem as difficult to get over. How do you know that those thoughts and feelings you had that morning after dropping your kids off at daycare will not return? I expect them to. Why? I expect them to, and, and I hope that if they do come, that I'm able to find that space between the stimuli and the response that has made me feel that way, that I'm able to catch that space to realize that that's only a fading minute or moment. Um, 
I say that knowing that we all have, um, we all have setbacks in life. You know, I have a, a good friend of mine. His, his name's Eric Weimar. He's the only blind man to ever climb Mount Everest. And, um, we were talking about an issue that I was having in my life, uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago. And he was giving me an example and he said, you know, when I start something, you know, I start it with all the passion I have to see it through. And sometimes when we start something, we have these grand ideas of what it's going to become. And we forget to look at that there are going to be pitfalls. There are going to be, you know, barriers that we got to climb over to get to the other side. There's going to be all of these highs and lows. And as the, you know, we approach these lows, it's, it's in those moments that we have to ask ourselves, how committed are we to our goal? And, uh, and how committed are we to moving forward? And if we are, then it's about taking that adversity we're facing and using it as the fuel to move us to do something good. So, for example, what I mean by that is I'd like to say that these four years have been, you know, blessed with no challenges from life. Uh, but in 2017, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, I've been dealing with health problems since 2014 that the doctors don't know what's going on. They just know it's autoimmune issues. They know it's my body is attacking itself and, you know, we treat it as we can. Um, and then they gave me the official diagnosis of fibromyalgia, which means we don't know what the fuck it is, but we got to give you a diagnosis of something and now I'm left trying to figure out ways to mitigate um, uh, an issue that I'm going to have for the rest of my life. And that's a really frustrating thing, especially when it takes you out of the game of life and, and, and not being able to do things in the same way that you used to be able to do them. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating. Uh, in 2000, January of 2018, um, I lost my best friend, a guy that I called and told um, that I had tried to eat my Glock. Uh, 2018 took his own life three weeks after I had seen him. And uh, I'd like to say that, you know, that I, I didn't revisit those feelings back then, but I did. I was spiraling and I thought if, if Brent can't make it, how can I? Um, but then I remembered what Eric and I talked about. I remember all the different advices that I, I, I get and um, all the different challenges that I had. And, and I just dug in and found something good to do, which ultimately led to taking wheelchairs to disabled kids in Nepal when I was you know, photographing an expedition in the Himalayas. So there's different ways that I utilize um, the environment around me to do good when I have those feelings now, rather than to retreat myself and hide in my hole like I used to. When you think back on the journey, 
Can you characterize it in a couple of words? I mean, is it, is there something that sticks out to you that, you know, if I said sum it up in one word, could you do it? Um, exhilarating. If you were going to ask me one word about this whole journey, I would say exhilarating. If I got three words, I would say exhilarating. Heartbreak is one word and resilience as the last. Exhilarating and heartbreak sort of are antonyms in this sense, at least uh, somewhat. I mean, why, why both ends of the spectrum? Um, well, I mean, you know, the, the, just start with the very first thing that, you know, big thing that happened meeting my wife on a plane, you know, and nine months later getting married, that was an exhilarating, uh, situation and experience in my life. Something that I, I remember a whole lot about. And I look back on, you know, incredibly found fondly, Uh, heartbreaking because, you know, we lost David along with uh, six other, you know, uh, children via stillbirth or miscarriage. Um, Exhilarating because, you know, uh, you want to feel alive, get into a firefight. You know what I mean? (laughs) um, um, So you have a lot of extreme, I guess, ultimately the reason I chose exhilarating because you've had, I've had, a lot of extreme highs in my life that are followed by a whole lot of extreme lows. And uh, sometimes it's really hard, you know, to just stay on that nice, long, slow downhill when you've had that much up and down in life. Are you ever surprised about how far you've come in this journey? Like when you think back, to that guy sitting at that kitchen table with a gun in his mouth. Are you ever surprised at how far removed from that moment you've been able to go? Um, it's funny that you asked that. It was about two weeks ago, the first time that I felt that way. Um, everyone who knows me will tell you that like I am my own worst critic. I, I'm incredibly hard on myself. Um, I'm also a perfectionist. So like that, those two things like are, are really hard on me. But, um, the other day I, I was, uh, changing my shirt in the bathroom. My wife came in and she looked at me and she's like, you're looking really good. And, and I looked, I looked over at her and I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah. And so for the first time with like unobjective eyes, I looked at myself standing there and I, I went from um, 218 pounds the day I was sitting at, at the table to 164 today. Um, I'm in shape, you know, I'm could be in better shape. This is where I'm saying that, you know, I'm my own worst enemy, <laughs> uh, but you know, like, I mean, what I'm getting at here is that, um, no, and, and and truthfully, there to me, during the last four years, there really hasn't been time to take, you know, to look up and, and take a look around um, because in our community, this is an epidemic. And, and I realized, you know, 
uh, in sharing my story, uh, I'm connecting civilians and veterans' experiences in a way that, you know, they don't really get to see. And by hearing it from this perspective or in this way, it feels like, you know, they're more connected to the veteran experience or the military experience. That's good because we need them. We need their help. Um, and so, uh, you know, in all of that time, I never really stopped and took a look at where I started to where I got. And when I was standing there a couple of weeks ago and I was, I was looking, I was like, wow, I, I really should be proud of myself. Like I look like an entirely new guy. Um, and then for shits and giggles, I tried on, I, I, I own very few things from back in that day. But one of the things that I saved was the blue jeans I was wearing the day I met my wife and lo and behold, I can actually fit into those blue jeans. There you go. Attaboy. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, you and your wife have obviously talked about that day. Do you think you'll ever tell your children about it? Um, so, you know, they've been around when I have given speeches and I've talked about it. Okay. Um, and the answer is, yeah, I absolutely will. Um, and the reason why is because one of the things that we often do is we act like mental health um, is a, you know, is a no-go topic. Uh, most people won't talk about it. They don't even talk about it with their family. And, and I just, I don't want my kids to grow up that way. Um, you know, I want them to grow up having a solid foundation where they know that if they're having some difficulties processing something, thinking about something, um, understanding something that they can always come to us or really anyone and ask about that uh, or talk to them about that because that really isn't a weakness. It's a strength. And so, yes, absolutely. I would. And they'll be able to read about it because it's online. Yeah. No, I mean, obviously. And I'm, yeah. I just wonder, will that be a hard conversation for you? Do you think? I absolutely think it will be a hard conversation. Um, and this is, and not to make it sound simplistic, but it's, you know, I guess the, I, the, the reality of, of where I'm at with it is that it's a hard conversation, but as a parent, we're signing on, you know, when we sign up to be a parent, we're signing up to have those hard conversations and, um, sometimes that means being honest about who we are and where we've been and what our experiences can offer them as far as how to help, you know, s climb that, that ladder of life to make sure they get up that extra rung than where I am. What's your purpose now? I mean, you know, obviously it's, it's wife and kids, but when you sign up for the military, right, you kind of know what your purpose is because you're told it. And and regardless of the emotions and patriotism behind it, you understand, for lack of a better term, your left and right limits. But where do those sit now for you? Um, so, I, you know, that is a fantastic question. And normally I have some generic answer that I um, 
always have ready to go on something like that. But given the climate that we're in today, like, you know, we've had this whole conversation and we haven't talked about what's going on in the world. Sure. Um, and that, that, that's okay. That's good. I think people need a distraction, but it's hard because I've been reassessing that question. Right. And I think all of us, if we're not taking this time to reassess that question and what is our purpose in life, um, you know, we're not using this gift that we've been given. Uh, so for me, you know, I'm, I, I think it, it would be wrong for me to say that I know for certain. Um, what I do know that I, I enjoy doing right now, um, I enjoy making sure that disabled kids get the gift of mobility. Um, you know, we, we just, uh, um, got a 200 wheelchairs that are going to be showing up to Nepal this fall for 200 kids over there. And I won't be able to get to be there. I was going to be taking veterans with me to the build and deliver the wheelchairs. We won't be able to do that at this point because of the coronavirus. But I think genuinely when we talk about purpose, it's really just helping other people. Um, and I obviously have, uh, uh, a driven purpose with veterans um, and helping them understand that it is possible with incredible hard work, with incredible amounts of hard work, it is possible to um, move forward and start writing that next chapter. And it's not that you're ever going to forget what happened at war, but you're going to start writing something new. And by the time you're in that middle of that chapter, you'll start to realize that you've found some sort of new purpose, right? Like one of the things that I always love and, and, and is, you know, when you get to, I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity, but if you ever get it, please take it. And if not, let me know and I'll find a group for you to do this too, because you should. Um, but if you ever had an opportunity to reach out to a group of people who are just coming off of a, uh, of a retreat or something, you know, that's dealing with PTSD, something like, you know, a mission 22 event or uh, a no barriers event or any of these different things where veterans go to work on these mental health issues. When they come back, the first thing that they say is, you know, I, I, I've kind of figured out where I'm at. I've figured out where this is. This has changed my life. I want to help veterans. And I always smile when I hear that. And, and I, I make a note of who always says that to me. And then when I call three months later to check up on those people that I, you know, got to meet and got to talk with, I always ask them, you still want to help veterans? And they're like, yeah. And then I ask them questions about where they're at. And like any, you know, scenario, you're going to go through that program. You're going to be on a post-program high uh, for about a week. And then life is going to come back and you're going to get a little depressed. That's the way it works, clear across the board every single time. It's when you get depressed is, are you going to push through that depression that life, you know, is has the possibility of change and then make that change happen for yourself? Um, so 
I say my veterans because I always hear that from people. But the first thing that you got to do is you got to help yourself. And, and I learned that the hard way, you know, you can't help other veterans if you're not in a good place yourself. Uh, and that's the one, one challenge that I, I always put out to veterans is help yourself first and then help veterans. Well, to that, um, to that end, you've, you're working with a bunch of different veterans organizations. I kind of want to give you a platform to uh, let us know, you know where people can find you now and sort of what you're doing to support veterans. Still. Okay, perfect. Um, so uh, you can find me at handupllc.com. Uh, that's my website. Uh, I do speaking engagements. Uh, photography is my passion. I also do work with uh, a number of different uh, veteran groups. I, uh, I have co-founded a program called Rock Wheel, uh, Rock Warriors, Reach Out and Care Warriors. It's a program that falls under a nonprofit called Reach Out and Care Wheels that uh, builds and delivers wheelchairs to disabled children in developing countries. So basically we take veterans and we uh, go to disabled countries and we deliver and build wheelchairs for kids there uh, and get them fitted properly into the chairs. And then I also volunteer with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. Uh, I'm a member of their Storm the Hill uh, crew, which is their premier leadership fellowship, uh, leadership fellow training program. I probably just butchered that. I'm sorry, IAVA. It's a little <laughs> bit late. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I'm, I'm always working with them. I encourage all of the, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans out there to look look at IAVA, become a member. And if you've ever had any interest at truly advocating for veterans, uh, they run a program called Storm the Hill that you can sign up for, learn how to advocate for veterans on Capitol Hill, where, you know, the real legislation and the real change is made. Well, it certainly is uh, an amazing story with a wonderful postscript, so to speak. And you know, obviously it's not the end by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I think I feel like I'm talking to somebody who understands that today is not given and tomorrow is the blessing. And uh, from that end, you're truly appreciative of the fact that you're still here. And it, it's just, there are more stories like yours that we need to be telling because unfortunately the 20 or 22 a day that we're hearing about are, are not enough at this point to overcome there's stories like yours that we need to hear more of, if that makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense to me. And, and I, I mean, it's why, you know, as soon as you said, Hey, you want to do this podcast? Absolutely. You know, it's, you guys are doing this podcast. That's giving people hope for, for, you know, for exactly what you're talking about. And, um, and that's what we need to be doing more of. I, I think the VA could definitely be, uh, choosing to highlight people who have found a way forward to give um, hope and inspiration. Absolutely. Well, Eric, again, I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, I know you're busy. You got a lot going on and uh, certainly appreciate your flexibility uh, as far as with all we have going on uh, with the virus and everything. I hope everybody on your end is obviously safe and healthy and um, practicing all the social distancing they need to, but Again, uh, I, I love chatting with you, uh, your passion and your fervor for your story. I, I think it would make it unique because, again, a lot of people 
uh, don't have the courage to sit there and tell that story. Well, they've lived it. They don't need to retell it over and over again. And the fact that you do gives other people hope. And I think that's critically important. Oh, I appreciate that very much coming, especially coming from you, my friend. Eric Donahoe, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground podcast, brother. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it, brother. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.